continue our sermon series on the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Now remember, these seven churches, there were seven churches that these letters were written to, but these seven churches represent all churches throughout all time. So uh, they're relevant to the church today. cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Father, today, uh, I pray we wouldn't be distracted, but we would have a, a heart, uh, ears of our heart open, ready to hear. That, Father, we would not have any preconceived ideas or understanding about this passage of Scripture, but it would be as if we're seeing it for the first time. And I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning and that we would, uh, Father, those of us that are here today that are your children, that we would take advantage of every opportunity we have to hear your word, to share your word, and, Father, to live according to your word. In Christ's name, amen. Now, folks, I'm going to be honest with you. The seven churches in Asia Minor that letters are written to here in the book of the Revelation, if I could attend in one church, it would have been the church of Philadelphia. And if I could only have attended one service, it would have been the service where this letter was read to the congregation. Because I can just imagine what they're thinking. They had probably heard about the letters written to the other churches around them, and no doubt they had heard about the letter their neighbor at Sardis had received, and Jesus had told them, you're a dead church. So I imagine they were pretty nervous, and as the, the pastor nervously opened the letter to read to the congregation, they were probably wondering, what in the world is Jesus going to say about us? But this little church at Philadelphia had nothing to fear because Jesus only had words of commendation for this precious fellowship. He didn't have one word of condemnation for them. This church was kind of like the church at Philadelphia, was kind of like a rose between two thorns. On one side, you had Sardis, which was a dead church. And then a little, little ways down the road, on the other side, there was Laodicea, which was an indifferent church, a church filled with apathy. But at Philadelphia, it was a dedicated church. And this wonderful little church served a wonderful Lord. Because look at verse 7. We're told that Jesus is pure in character. It says, these things say he who is holy. Now, folks, Jesus is absolutely holy. He is absolutely righteous. He is untainted by sin, unscarred by iniquity. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26 that he is our high priest who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate 
from sinners. In Jesus' life, you could find no stain, no blemish, no spot, no guilt, no guile. He was pure in character, but he was also pure in conduct because look at verse 7. Notice the next line. Saith he that is holy, he that is true. Folks, notice that Jesus is not just one who tells the truth, but he is truth. He is true. You see, a man can be truthful and yet not be true. You say, how is that possible? Well, I heard a story about a, a guy who had a neighbor that was a, a habitual liar. I mean, this guy lied all the time. He'd rather, uh, he would climb a tree for a lie and leave the truth laying on the ground. Well, his neighbor had all he could take. So he said, let's do me a favor. Just tell me one thing that is absolutely true. Do you think you can do that? The guy who was a habitual liar said, well, sure I can. The next thing I tell you is absolutely true. The guy says, what is that? He said, I never tell the truth. Now think about it, folks. That guy was truthful, but he wasn't true. Now with Jesus, unlike most people, Jesus not only tells the truth, he is the truth. See, the difference between us and the Lord Jesus Christ is we try to practice what we preach, but Jesus always preached what he practiced because he was always true. But we're also told that Jesus, he's powerfully in control. Look at verse 7, the rest of it. He that hath the key of David, he that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. Now understand, keys are symbolic in Scripture. They represent authority. They represent power. And Jesus is the keeper of the keys. I believe this verse uh, here in verse 7 is an allusion back to Isaiah 22, 22, where we're told that Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, was given the key to the house of David. Now what that means is he was given the key to the storehouse, to the treasure house of the king. Now let me take it a little farther and explain verse 7. I believe that simply tells us that Jesus is our resource. He's our great provider. He has the resources and the wherewithal to meet all of our needs. Now is that not what Paul said in Philippians 4.19? My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. So let me ask you a question. Do you have a need? You may think, well, that's a silly question, preacher, because everybody has needs. Well, I'm going to tell you on the authority of the one who holds the keys to the storehouse of heaven that if you believe God and you're right with God, he'll meet all your needs. Now, I've talked about this time and time again, and I realize in the day and age we live that, uh, you know, it's a time of materialism and a time of uh, that consumer mentality that people say, well, I have a lot of needs. No, no. Most people have very few needs, but they have a lot of wants. Now, I'm not telling you he's going to meet your want, but he'll meet your needs. <clears throat> and I'm going to tell you something as a pastor. It's, it's tragedy, and it's, it's tragic to my heart when I hear people or I hear churches say, well, I wish we could do this or I wish we could do that for the Lord, but we can't do it because we don't have enough money or we don't have enough finances or enough resources. I want you to listen to me. Let me tell you real clear, no work of God ever fails for lack of finances. If a work of God fails, it's not lack of finances, friend, it's lack of faith. Dr. Vance Havner said, we will always have all we will need to do all that God wants us to do as long as he wants us to do it. I want you to listen to me. The same Savior, the same Lord that had the keys to God's treasure house in heaven, that fed 5,000 men with a few fish and a few loaves of bread, He's alive and well today. I remember hearing the story of a young husband and father who died, suddenly died tragically, and left behind a wife and a little girl. And, and after the funeral was over with, the mother.
the wife, the mother, was sitting in the living room, had her head buried in her hands, and she was just weeping and crying. And the crying brought the little girl to her side. And the little girl said, Mommy, why are you crying? And the young mother said, Honey, you just don't understand. Daddy is gone. Now we have no one left to take care of us. I really don't know how we're going to make it. There was a pause, and then the little girl said, Well, Mommy, is God gone too? Let me tell you something, folks. That's an outstanding question. That is a tremendous question. I want to tell you something. The God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and even the hills upon which they stand, the God who says the righteous shall not be forsaken or begging for bread, the God who tells us I'll meet all the needs you have, this wonderful Lord and Savior, this Lord of sincerity, this Lord of sovereignty, He's the one that introduces us to the church at Philadelphia. I want you to see the first thing about this church. It's the opportunity of the church. <clears throat> the Lord begins, look at verse 8, saying, I know thy works. Behold, I've set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Let me ask you, have you ever had a door slammed in your face? Anybody ever experienced that? What a joy that is, is it not? Now, I realize that's not a pleasant experience. Jesus says here, I've set this door before the church, and it's wide open. And I'm telling you, I open the door. That means nobody's going to shut it. Now, there are two kinds of doors that Jesus holds the keys to. Uh, there's doors that Jesus opens that nobody's going to shut. And then there's doors that Jesus shuts that nobody's going to open. And there are several types of doors that Jesus opens and nobody can shut. And when he, let me say this, when Jesus opens a door, Christian, I want you to listen to me. Church, listen to your pastor. When Jesus opens a door, we must we should walk through that door. Now let's talk about some doors that Christ opens that nobody else can shut. And, and one door that, that Christ shuts and nobody else can open. First of all, there's the door of grace. The door of salvation. Now you may remember the story when Paul and Barnabas had returned from their missionary journey and they were giving a report to the church at Antioch. In Acts chapter 14, verse 27. It says, and when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Now, do you know, folks, that Jesus is the only one who can open the door of grace, the door of faith, the door of salvation? Do you know that this door of salvation, this door of grace, it's a door that's open to anyone at any time, anywhere? Matter of fact, friend, it's open right here and right now. If you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you've never stepped through that door, then you can today. You can take the key of faith, open the door of grace, step into the hallway of heaven, and be saved for eternity. Now, I know there are some people, they say, well, I want to be saved, preacher, but I just can't bring myself to do it. I'm going to tell you something. That's a lie. That's not true. God never opens a door for anyone who can't walk through that door. If God opens a door, you can walk through it. Now, let me say this to you. Unless you have committed the unpardonable sin, and I can assure you, if you're alive and want to be saved, you have not committed the unpardonable sin. The only reason, friend, if you're here today and you're not saved is not because you cannot be saved, but because you will not be saved. The door is open to all who want to enter because Jesus said in John 10, 9, I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he'll be saved. And here's the thing about it. Jesus never slams the door on anyone who wants to come in. Jesus has opened the door of grace and no man can shut it. But also, there's the door to the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9. 
For a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. What Paul was doing, he was referring to the door of opportunity to preach the gospel at Ephesus. Again, Colossians, uh, Colossians 4.3, Paul says, Praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ. Now, here's what Paul was doing. He was praying that even while he was chained in prison, that the door for the freedom of the gospel would be opened so people would hear about Jesus Christ. Then 2 Corinthians 2 and 12. Furthermore, when I came to Tros to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. Now, I've said all that to say this. I want you to listen to me, Christian. Have you ever considered the fact that witnessing is simply walking through the doors that God has opened for you? Did you hear what I said? Sharing the gospel with somebody, witnessing to somebody, that's simply walking through the door that God has opened for you. Do you know that when you get an opportunity to witness to someone else, it's not because you're so knowledgeable. It's not because you're so persuasive. It's not coincident. It's not just that you're in the right place at the right time. No, friend. You get the opportunity to witness to somebody, it's because Jesus Christ has opened that door for you to witness to that person. Now, having said that, think about this. When someone opens a door and you refuse to walk through it, that often is a matter of courtesy. You agree? Well, let me say this. When Jesus Christ opens a door and you refuse to go through it, that becomes a matter of commitment. I want to tell you that all over this city, all over our country, God has opened doors for people to hear the gospel. And He is simply waiting for Christians to have the faith, the courage, and the boldness to walk through those doors and bring people to Jesus Christ. You remember the next time, I want you to remember this, the next time that you're carrying your Bible in public, the next time that you and your family in a restaurant bow your head to pray, the next time that you come to a worship service, a, a public worship gathering, the next time you turn the TV on to watch a religious program or turn the radio on to hear somebody preach the gospel, I want you to remember that you are still living in a country with an open door to the gospel. Now, it's closing every day. But we're still in a country where the door is open where we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a lost world. But here's the problem. Are we? Why aren't we if we're not? And I'm telling you, we need to take advantage of it. We need to make the most of it. We need to do as Paul said in Ephesians 5, 16, redeeming the time for the days are evil. The door of the gospel, the door of grace, but then there's the door of the grave. Revelation 1.18, Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell, or Hades, and of death. Now, this is the door that when Jesus shuts it, nobody's going to open it. You know, when you're, you exit this life and your body's put in that casket, casket put down in the ground, it's going to stay there till Jesus comes back. Nobody's going to open it. Now, what I mean by that, they say, well, they may, uh, you know, well, ex, uh, exhume. I start to excommunicate. I don't guess that happened. Uh, they may exhume the grave, but what I'm talking about is death, friend. When your eyes close in death, Jesus is the only one that can bring life back to the dead. He has the keys to death. Years ago, I remember reading a, a, a true story about a family who was ordered by the courts to bury the little girl. What happened was their young daughter died from a, from a, a, a terminal illness. And the family, instead of burying her, they, they prepared her body and had it put in their living room. 
and they held a prayer vigil for several weeks, praying night and day that she'd be resurrected. Finally, the courts had to step in and order that the child's body be buried. Now, let me say this. This family, as well-intentioned as they might have been, they were trying to open the door that when it shut, Jesus is the only one that can open it. Now, I'm telling you this because if you've never walked through the door of salvation, one day the door of death is going to shut on you. Jesus is the only one with the keys to defeat death. So you need to walk through the door of grace, the door of salvation, before you walk through that door of death. So we see the opportunity of this church. They have an open door, an open door of witnessing, working, and serving for Jesus. Now, in light, folks, of the great opportunity this church has, an open door to advance the kingdom, to advance the gospel, Jesus makes a surprise, some surprising observation. Because, first of all, he, he says it was a feeble church. Look at verse 8. Jesus felt the muscle of this church, and look what he found. Thou hast little strength. You got a little bit of strength. Now, comparatively speaking to this church was, was kind of weak. I mean, compared to Sardis, who on the outside had a great reputation, this little church at Philadelphia, I'm sure that they didn't have carpeted floors and padded pews and, and great chandeliers hanging from the ceiling. I'm sure at first glance, it was a very unimpressive little church. I'm sure they didn't have a big budget. They didn't have a lot of buses to run. Uh, they didn't have a big Sunday school program. If you'd have been driven by the church at Philadelphia, you'd have probably thought, what a small, weak little church. Now, folks, it's true that that church at Philadelphia didn't have a lot, but I want to say this. It was kind of like my family. My family didn't have a lot growing up, but we had a lot of love. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I know this church had a lot of love. You say, how do you know, preacher? Because of the name. What does the name Philadelphia mean? Brotherly love. And I'm going to tell you, this church, they may not have had everything that it wanted, but it had more than enough of what it needed. They had love for God, love for the brethren, and love for a lost world. Now, it might have been a small church, but it had a great big heart. Reminds me of a story I heard of President Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. He had a little dog. That, that, that dog was a fighter. It fought the other dogs all the time. Problem was, it kept getting whipped. I mean, he got whipped every time, but it still went back for more. One day, his little dog tackled this big mangy cur and got the beating of his life. His friend asked him later, said to, or made a comment. He said, Teddy, your, your dog ain't much of a fighter, is he? President Roosevelt objected. He said, well, on the contrary. He said, my dog's a great fighter. He's just a poor judge of other dogs. <laughs> well, folks, that kind of reminds me of this church in Philadelphia. They may have been a small church, small on the outside, but they had a great big heart. They had what was important. Church in Philadelphia, even though it was a feeble church, it was a solid, it was a firm church. And Jesus says, and I believe he did so proudly, look at verse 8. He said, you have kept my word. Now, the reason why Jesus opened such a great door of opportunity for this little seemingly feeble, small church was because this church, simple, they had kept his word. What really matters with Jesus is not ability, but dependability. Listen to me, friend. Greatness is not a matter of uh, uh, reputation. It's not a matter of scholarship. It's a matter of relationship. This church was loyal, loving, faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his word. May I say that a church or an individual cannot be true to God unless they are true to the word of God as well. It's impossible to be true to one without being true to both. 
Martin Luther said, we hold the same reverence to the Word of God that we do to God Himself. This church, whatever else it was, it was a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church. Now think about this. A man and his word may be different, but God and His Word cannot be separated. The psalmist writes, Psalm 138, 2, For you have magnified your word above all your name. Listen, the only thing that was in heaven other than God before this world began was His word. The psalmist also writes, Psalm 119, 89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. This church, it, it was a firm church. It was also a faithful church. Look at verse 8. Jesus said, It has not denied my name. This little church, they were not only true to Scripture, but, friend, they were true to the Savior because they hadn't denied the name of Jesus. And that, I believe they knew, and I'm telling you, it goes for any church or any Christian. If you deny Scripture, ultimately you're going to degrade the Savior. And I'm sure that even though it was not a popular thing to do, even though it cost them, and cost many of them their very lives, they remained true. They remained unashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. They stayed by Jesus, come what may. I think there's a great lesson that we need to learn from this little church. I heard a true story about a young man from the hills of North Carolina who enlisted in the military. And he left home and he ended up being stationed in Mississippi. While he was there, he contracted a, 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 a terrible virus and it began to take his life. There was nothing they could do for him. They put him in the hospital and they sent a, a, a telegram to his folks who were just poor farmers up in the mountains of North Carolina and tell them the seriousness of the condition of their son that they were not sure their son would even make it long enough for the family to get there. Well, again, this family was poor. And there was a bunch of other kids there. And, and so mom had to take care of those kids. And, and dad, he got the wagon and was getting it ready to go to the train depot and catch the train to Hattiesburg, Mississippi. His wife come out to him. She said, honey, I want you to promise me something. He said, what's that? She said, I want you to promise me, no matter what happens, that you'll stay by my son. You'll stay by him to the end. And the father, father the, the dad said, honey, I don't know if I can do that. I got a farm to run. We got crops that need to be brought in. We got bills to pay and we can't do it if we don't make any money. She said, then I'll go and you stay and take care of that. He said, that's a long trip, mama. She said, then you better promise me you'll stay with my son. The dad said, I promise you, mom, I'll stay by our boy. So he got in the wagon, went to the train depot, got on the train, made that long trip. He got there about 10 o'clock, uh, a couple of days later in the morning. And he walked in, his son was unconscious, so he sat down beside his bed. And about an hour or two, his son opened his eyes. And he saw his dad, and he said, Dad, is that you? He said, yeah, boy, it's me. And they began to visit for just a minute, but his son was so weak. And he said, Dad, I'm just going to shut my eyes for a minute. I'm, I'm awful tired. And he shut his eyes and he drifted off into a coma. About 8 o'clock that night, the nurse came in. She said, Sir, I'm, I'm sorry, but visiting hours are over. You're going to have to leave for the night. That old farmer said, Ma'am, I, I don't mean to cause any problems, but I ain't leaving my son. I'm staying right here. She said, Sir, you got to go. He said, No, I'm staying right here. She walked out, and about 20 minutes later, two young Husky MPs come in. They said, sir, we're sorry, but you're going to need to leave for the evening. This old farmer stood up to his full height, and he looked down on those two young men. He said, boys, I want no problem, but I've got to stay by my son. 
They thought about it for a minute, and they said, you know what, sir, we understand. You can stay. Well, about 2 o'clock the next morning, that boy died. He slipped off into eternity. Dad was there when they prepared his body. They put him in that casket, draped that casket with a flag. Dad stayed right there beside that casket. They took the casket to the train depot. Dad sat right beside that casket. Dad rode with the casket all the way back to North Carolina. And when he got there, he got his wagon, put the casket in the back of the wagon, took it to the funeral home. All the time, staying right there beside that boy. After he left the funeral home, he got in the wagon, went home, and as he was pulling into the drive, Mom heard him coming up the drive, heard that old wagon rattle. And she had already received the telegram that the son, the boy, had died. Well, when he got there and stopped the wagon, the father got out of the wagon, and Mom could see the exhaustion and the grief in his face. And she walked over to him, and Dad got down, and he hugged his wife, hugged that boy's mother, and he said, Mama, let me tell you. And he went to tell her the things the son had said and what had transpired, and she said, No, I don't need to hear that. She said, Honey, all I want to know is, did you stay by my son to the end? Dad looked at her and looked in the eyes and he said, yes, ma'am, I stayed to the end. She said, that's all that matters. Listen to me, church. The church at Philadelphia, they were determined they were going to stay by Jesus all the way to the end. We need to determine that as well. No matter what happens, no matter what happens in society, no matter what changes, we're going to stay by Jesus all the way to the end. Let me tell you, this church at Philadelphia, they, had, they bore two great marks. Two marks of a great church. You know what they are? Number one is unswerving loyalty to the Word of God. And number two is uncompromising love for the Son of God. Those are marks of a great church. Not numbers, not money, not buildings, but an unswerving loyalty to the Word of God and an uncompromising love to the Son of God. And my prayer is at Southside we would have those same marks. Because, listen to me, friend, when it's all said and done, what really matters is, did we stay by the Son of God all the way to the end? I want you to see the third thing is the opposition of the church. This church lived daily in the fire of persecution. I mean, they were, they were getting hit from every side. First, look at verse 9, the fierceness of the opposition. Jesus refers to their opposition as uh, them of the synagogue or those of the synagogue of Satan. So they were not just opposed by, let's say, socialism and humanism and liberalism. They were being opposed by the synagogue of Satan. They were fighting against the forces of hell and Satan himself. And let me tell you something, friend. If you want to make enemies in this world, then just surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Get saved and make up your mind that you're going to stay true to the Word of God and the Son of God, and you'll have plenty of enemies. Do you realize when a person is saved, they automatically make three friends and three enemies? When a person is saved, they become a friend of God the Father, a friend of God the Son, and a friend of God the Holy Spirit. But when a person surrenders their life to Christ and gets saved, they automatically become enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And as a Christian, listen to me and listen close. You have to be ready to fight against the pull and the allurement of the world, against the greed of the flesh, and against the godlessness of the devil. In other words, you become enemies of self, sin, and Satan. But here's the wonderful thing, uh, folks. Each friend takes care of each enemy. 
Think about this. Folks, God the Father takes care of sin. He took care of sin when He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross. God the Son takes care of Satan. He defeated Satan on the cross and when He rose from the dead. And God the Holy Spirit takes care of self by filling us and indwelling us. I know we face opposition today in the world. As Christians, we face opposition. And I'm telling you, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it may come a time when we face the opposition, just like the church at Philadelphia did. But you don't need to fret. You don't need to fear. Why? Because God's Word says in 1 John 4, 4, Greater is He who's in you than he who is in the world. Notice the failure of the opposition. Verse 9. Behold, I'll make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. I got some wonderful news for you today. If you love Jesus, you're not here in this world to fight for victory. You're here in this world fighting from victory because the war has already been won. The war has already been won. Now, we may have to fight some skirmishes. We we fight some battles, but the war has already been decided. And I'm going to be honest, folks. The church of Jesus Christ today, we face some daunting foes. I mentioned a few of them a while ago. Let me hit it again. Atheism, socialism, humanism, materialism, paganism, liberalism. And let me say something. All these isms, they're all for one and one for all when it comes to the hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ. They all hate Christ and they all hate Christians. But I tell you, the book of the Revelation teaches clearly, it teaches plainly that when it's all said and done, we're going to win. Now let me remind you of something. When you take a stand for Jesus Christ, you're on the winning side. It may not look like it right now, but you're on the winning side. So many times we live, Christians, as if we're defeated. We're not defeated. Get your mind off this world and the temporal and begin to think about the eternal. Now, the final thing I want you to see, the overcomers of the church. Jesus closes, and I think he gives some wonderful counsel, tremendous words of encouragement to this faithful little church. And i got to tell you something, folks. In my opinion, when it comes to great churches, I think the church at Philadelphia, they may very well be at the top of God's list of great churches. Look at verse 12. Look at their position in God. He that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. Now, one of these days, folks, those of us who love Jesus are faithful to him, we're going to be a pillar in God's church. Now, what does a pillar do? A pillar is a symbol of solidarity and a symbol of strength. What the Lord was saying to the church at Philadelphia was, even though you may appear to be weak, even though the world may think you're insignificant, One day in heaven, because you're faithful to me, you're going to have a prominent position in the house of God. I believe that verse teaches us, Christian, that we are being reminded in this verse. I believe it teaches us that we need to live looking for the next life, not just living for this life. Now look at the possession by God. Verse 12. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God, and I will write upon him my new name. You know, every study book that I have, I thank everyone that I have, uh, commentary and lexicon and, and all those things, they all have my name written on the inside of it. Why? Because they belong to me. And I want that ownership clearly known. My children have my last name. Why? Because they belong to me. 
Now, what God is saying here is not only are we going to have a great position, those of us who are faithful and loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ, but we're also going to be a great possession. We're going to totally uh, belong to God. Lock, stock, and barrel for now and all eternity, we're His special possession. Now, listen, that's good news. Christian, you may think you're not valuable. You're not worth much. The world may try to convince you you're not worth much. But I want you to listen to me. As a believer and a child of God, you're valuable. You are priceless. You know why? Not because of who you are, but because of whose you are. Romans 14, verse 7 and 8, Paul says, For none of us live to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Christian, that's a tremendous promise. I belong to him. No, come what may. No matter what transpires, it's not going to change the fact. I belong to God. I'm his special possession. Now, that promise is only for those who have walked through the door of grace, who have the courage and commitment to walk through those open doors and remain loyal to the Word of God and the Son of God. And I'm closing it right here. Listen to me. May God continue for us as a church and for us as individual Christians, may God continue to open doors before us. The door of salvation to the lost. The door of service to the saved. And may we always, church, have the faith, have the courage to walk through the doors that God has opened. Because if we do not, God will begin to close those doors. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. I'm going to make a couple of comments. Brother Ard and Miss Teresa will come. We'll have a hymn of invitation in just a moment. But I want to remind you of something I said earlier. If you're here today, you don't know Jesus Christ. You've never surrendered your life to Him. The door of salvation is open right now at this moment. It's open for you. If you have never walked through the door of salvation, I'm going to tell you, Jesus stands there with open arms, ready to receive you. And if you're here, you know you're a Christian believer, and especially those who are members of Southside, I want you to listen to me. There are open doors of service for you to walk through at this very moment. Walk through. You say, well, I don't know if I can. Now, listen. God doesn't open the door for somebody who can. There are doors that are open. You walk through them if you'll be committed and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the opportunities that God gives us. We need to make the most of them. Father, I thank you for reminding us in your word today of the great opportunities you have given us of doors that are open before us and how that we should be loyal, we should be faithful and walk through those doors. Father, I thank you for reminding us that at times it seems like we may be losing the war, but we're not. Father, in the end, we understand we're victorious. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Because of Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. Father, I pray for those this morning who need to make a decision, a decision to walk through the door of salvation, maybe a decision to walk through the door of service or, or the door of obedience. Father, whatever that is, I pray that they would make that decision today. They would, with faithfulness and courage, step through the door that you place before them. In Christ's name, amen. Would you stand, please?